You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. At the end of the week, on a Friday afternoon, with myself, Raza, Brother Daniel, and Brother Kiyum. As always, you can get in touch with us throughout the show if you want to add your opinion, if you want to join the conversation. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call if you have any questions. Um, you can also get in touch with us via Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, any uh, platform, social media platform that you prefer. Just search for Voice of Islam and you will see us uh, present there. Now, in the first half of the program, we are going to speak about Argentina. Is it heading in the right direction after the election that happened in the month of November, where Javier Millet, a libertarian economist who campaigned as a political outsider, promising to revive Argentina's economy through sweeping reforms, has been elected. And in the second half of the program, we're going to speak about the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his return to Mecca. But before we get started, let me actually, first of all, inquire about these two very quiet gentlemen in the studio, Brother Daniel and Brother Kim. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you to both of you. Wa alaikum assalam. We, we were listening intently to you, sir. That's why you were quiet. We, we don't just, want to I interrupt. Just, a, I just thought we, we don't want to interrupt an imam. You no, see, that's, uh, that's absolutely... <laughs> Brother Q, two cups, one bottle, a lot of keys. My goodness, you must have been busy, eh? Peace be on you, gentlemen. It is Friday afternoon. It is. Uh, is, is this all part of your packing uh, for the for the much-awaited trip that you're having? You know, getting all the things together. The trip? What trip? Did I miss out on anything? No, no, no. The the, the holiday that he's been planning for a long time. I see, yeah. I see. Yeah, it's all the glasses, you know. Yeah. This it looks like he's going somewhere he's sunny. He's packing already, yes. My Are you li- retiring? My li- I, I retired 10 years ago. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> I, re- I retired a long time ago. Right, now, good. Before we get started. Something um, you guys will only ever get to spell. <laughs> I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to retire. But he just, as an imam, I'm I sure just, he doesn't want to retire. Yeah, so I think just, this is a lifelong yeah, commitment. You're not offering him anything. There's there. no. There's no choice that I have here. Correct. Uh, there's a thing. Right. Lifelong yeah. commitment. Ooh. Yeah. I'm serious about these things. Anyways, oh. before we get started with Argentina, I want to. We want to actually touch upon today. So today, as we know, the ICJ they came up with their ruling. And Brother Daniel, I want to kickstart with you. Just uh, run through some of the main highlights, main main points that uh, we found out this morning. Before you do, sure, there will be disagreement. I I pre warn you. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, I, I think there can be very dis- little disagreement on facts, <laughs> and the facts are <laughs> yeah. that uh, ICJ ordered the following today. So they by fifteen to two judges. Um, the ICJ said in their order that Israel shall take all measure, measures within its power to prevent genocidal acts. Um, by uh, 15 to 2 votes, Israel will ensure that its army doesn't commit any genocidal acts. By 16 to 1 votes, Israel will prevent and punish public incitement to commit genocidal acts against Palestinians. 16 to 1 vote, Israel will ensure the provision of urgent services and humanitarian aid to Gaza. 15 to two votes, Israel will ensure the preservation of evidence related to allegations of genocide and 
sixth uh, um, order in the short provision order was by 15, um, 15 judges to two, and is uh, the order states Israel will submit a report to the court in one month showing its compliance with these orders now. What um, all of this means, so to me, uh, this means uh, as follows. I think this um, uh, this order is a bit of a disappointment. It's a, it's a disappointment for me because it stops short of what was being asked, uh, what I, I should say is desperately needed in Gaza, which is a ceasefire, yeah. and which is what South African um, case actually asked as part of the provisional measures. Now, remember, so... Uh, this was this is a case which was heard only two and a half weeks ago by the ICJ, and what the ICJ has done is to issue provisional measures, as was requested by the South African government. What was not in the purview of the court was a decision on the merits of the case, which is whether or not a genocide has actually been committed. Uh, South African government had asked for provisional measures to be issued uh, by the court after which the merits of the case will be decided over a number of years. Yeah. Uh, and that is what uh, the judgment, uh, today's judgment, actually announced. And within that judgment, uh, what was not announced was uh, what was asked uh, on the top of the list by South Africa, which was um, uh, a ceasefire. And that, unfortunately, I think, um, uh, to me, is a, is a travesty. I think um, is uh, is a miscarriage of justice because that is what is needed desperately uh, by the people in Gaza. To me, also, I think this is um, this this order doesn't do anything above and beyond what many governments are already asking of Israel, which is to 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 not do genocide, which is to take care of its responsibilities under international law, which is to provide food and medicine. And um, what is um, uh, what the Israeli government has been saying all along, in fact, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu said today, uh, very much after the, um, I think the ruling was issued, that Israel is a, is a democracy, that Israel will comply with um, uh, with all aspects of humanitarian law, and Israel has always complied with yeah. all aspects of humanitarian law. So, uh, so to that end, I think this order doesn't add anything new to what has already been described and what is already being demanded of Israel. In, indeed, what Israel has actually been saying is, is what it's doing. So, yeah. So, to sum up, I think it's a bit disappointed today. I, I would have thought that. Um, the international court would have uh, would have gone one step ahead and uh, issued um, a provisional order to uh, to the extent of a ceasefire, which is something that it has done previously in other genocidal cases that it has heard, but unfortunately that was not uh, the case today. Brother Kim, I I agree partly with what Brother Daniel said, and the partly is that there was this expectation from ICJ to come out and say, well, yes, it is genocide. Yes, they should be ceasefire straight away. I am disappointed, but I'm disappointed with the spin um, because all the th six points that Brother Daniel talked about that they have said, five already are in place. Yeah. They were part of the Genocide Convention, so there's nothing new that they've said. Exactly. 
The only new thing that they've said, and I think that one thing that they said is relevant, is the fact that Israel needs to come back in a month's time and issue, and give that report on what action has been taken. Exactly. To I, if I bear, can, with, I, bear with me. No, let me, no, let just, me finish. Listen, I didn't interrupt you. No, no, let that's me, fine. Uh, Daniel, no, please. no, no, no. Just, just, just a point of clarification on that. What I'm uh, not to not to interrupt you. What all I'm uh, you trying to say is that. Um, uh, I think that uh, that also is actually a water watering down of what South Africa actually asked uh, in terms of reporting, because um, South Africa had actually asked for weekly reporting, and reporting weekly reporting on a regular basis from Israel. What I think I think again is uh, um, is that what the court has actually ordered is a report after one month. So I don't think it's a monthly reporting. Again, that's what I think. I, I probably need to go back and, and read it again. But my understanding so far is that what what the court has said is that it will that um, uh, that Israel should come back and report in a month's time, as opposed to monthly or weekly reporting. So two different things. Sorry. Okay. The month they need to come back in a month and show the court what exactly they have done in respect of the first five points that they have listed. They said plausible. The word plausible is important because they didn't say it's not happening. But what that means is that they're on their way getting, they're on their way. It looks like there is an intention there. And to expect ICJ to come out and say that yes, genocide is happening, it was naive of people to think that they were going to make this decision. Because, again, ICJ is no different from any other international organizations. They can uh, they can make the law. They can say, yes, this is the law. But they have no authority in enforcing the law. They, they, to have this expectation of justice, like Brother Daniel, when we were talking earlier, that he's disappointed because justice wasn't served. Justice hasn't been served f- when it comes to the Palestine issue for for decades. This is something that has been brought to light by South Africa, yes, in a court of law, in an international court of law. But to think that 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 we were going to get this clear-cut um, determination from the court is naive of people. The positive thing is that Israel now cannot block the aid going in. They can't, because that has been made clear before they were stopping the trucks were at uh, were at rafa they weren't going in now they will be aid will be allowed in i i understand the ceasefire is not going to happen but at least food uh, and and uh, provisions are allowed to be going to be going in to gaza so the people can get some kind of provision some kind of um, uh, basics uh, that has been missing for three months. I and and I think there is a wider um, picture that needs to be looked at, which is that the fact that since this uh, determination by the court, Belgium, Slovenia, Ireland, they have said, <clears throat> who were previously very very reluctant to back anyone, have said that they will be backing. South Africa um, in in this determination of what ICJ has said. So the, the, the impact of it, be it minimal, is happening. 
where a lot of European countries who were who were silent are now saying, well, okay, now ICJ has said this, we're going to be backing, uh, we're going to be uh, supporting ICJ in the, the determination they've made. And, and South and Africa held it as a decisive victory. That's according right. According to that, yeah. But but then the again, see, see, that's politics. Yeah, it, it, you know, and and of course they will take it as a yeah, victory. You wouldn't expect yeah. them to say anything sure. else. Exactly, right. but then uh, you know, the the good thing, or maybe it's not a good thing. It's a it's a it's a perspective. Israel has come out and referred to ICJ as a kangaroo court after today, on the day they make the judgment, they have referred to ICJ as a kangaroo court. Hague Schmeg, yeah, yeah. So Bangor. so we already know the intention. Again. If one is uh, one country is refer- referring to the International Court of Justice as a uh, as a kangaroo court, it uh, it 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 kind of gives you an idea of how they are going to be treating any determinations that get made by them. Mm-hmm. Um, Brother Daniel, you rightly said that all these um, uh, these laws that uh, Israel is supposed to be following, everybody knows in United Nations, everybody knows the occupation is illegal. Yeah. So illegalities are already there. Mm. They are already happening. The difference, the problem for countries like USA and UK in this particular year, at this particular time, they're going to have to up the ante on Israel simply because it's election year. And the public, the social media war against mainstream media, mainstream are losing. Um, morally, um, the, the illegal occupiers of Palestine have lost already. That's just a given. I, th- I think that's the victory that everybody is referring to. Exactly. That in the sight of the international community, that's it. Th- we you know, know you, where they stand. Now. We we know where they stand, and and <clears throat> it's all well and good for countries like United Kingdom and countries like USA to ignore what the what the community is saying, what people are saying. When is midterm? Or when it's beginning of 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 a of a of parliament or, or or beginning of their tenure, we already know that 2024 is a year of elections across the world, yes. and they and and look, it's already happening in in USA, New Hampshire. No one has ever won New Hampshire Republicans. Hmm. Um, you know, and uh, Texas was it? Oh no, which one was it uh, that uh, he won the, the last week? Was it? Uh, uh, well, the the the, the other Iowa. What is Iowa? Iowa. No, it Iowa. was Iowa. Yeah. Iowa. Yeah, Iowa. Um, and you know, it's it's Donald Trump. What I'm, the point is, it's not Donald Trump who's winning it. It's Biden who's losing it because people are now taking into account the amount of money. That these countries are supplying and and giving out to to the you know the, to occupied Palestine, mm. um, to the occupiers of Palestine, that they're saying, well, hold on, we have got homeless, we've got expense, we've got expenses here. We've been told there's no money, yet billions and trillions of dollars are being sent overseas mm. for wars, for wars, yeah, in killing of of innocent people. Mm. And suddenly now, um, today again, we were talking about the 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 knock-on effect of this again is what His Holiness has been talking about for decades. Um, World War Three. What did NATO say today? NATO said maybe we're coming to a time where it's going to be, where, you know, um, conscription. Hmm. People are going to have to come in. 
Yeah. Yeah. Comes this, back, coming this back is to all. Guess. This is all connected sure. to what ICJ hmm. will do or not do. Right. So, a couple of points you mentioned, um, and I think it's important to to clarify. So, the, I, I agree with you on the first one that uh, people were naive. Actually, I would go one step further and say I think it, it was uh, probably naive is a, is a euphemism. There, it was incorrect for people for anybody to expect. Uh, a judgment on whether or not this was genocide in two weeks' time because the International Court of Justice takes years to discuss the merits of the case and the case is about whether or not a genocide has been committed. What was on the table only was whether but or not... That, that wasn't even what South Africa was asking for. Exactly that. The plausibility exactly that. of so, it being a genocide. So it was... It was um, uh, no, uh, not even the plausibility. So the... The South African case was the South African case is about whether or not a genocide is being committed, but that case is going to be heard over the next few years. Yes. Okay. What South Africa also asked in that case is that because it's going to take years for this court to deliberate and decide whether or not it's a, it's genocide or not, uh, the court <clears> must <throat> indicate some provisional measures so that there should be some relief for Palestinian people. Yeah. And the first uh, one of them was. Um, uh, was um, was ceasefire, which obviously was not given. So, so I think it's it's incorrect. Number one, two. Now the, the other point uh, I, is I, wait, look. No, 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 bef- no. Bef- uh, bef- okay. One second, one second, one second. The, the reason I want to say, I, I know that's a personal opinion of people being incorrect, but that's your point of view. Everyone, ha- you know, you to you might be incorrect, to somebody else might be correct. But I don't want to spend too much time on this topic. It's a very emotive topic. We have or you know, we're, we're 20, gonna, 25 we're minutes. Two more minutes. So, sure, right. So, no, no, so I'm talking about the facts of the case. I'm not talking about emotions. So the facts of the case was that, you know, the, what was on the table was, was provisional measures. Number two, um, uh, as far as the delivery of aid is concerned, so I think it's also important to remember that, yes, uh, the International Court of Justice has said and, uh, that uh, aid should, uh, should uh, the free flow of aid should be allowed by the Israeli government. But we must also remember that the United Nations Security Council only very recently passed a resolution in which it was it, it uh, required that delivery of aid be ensured by Israeli government. So I, I think there is a, there's already something which is, uh, which is already happening and which is probably uh, even more powerful than the ICJ ruling, which is the decision of the United Nations Security Council and was supported by the Americans. The Americans didn't veto that. And that was about the fact that aid, delivery of aid, should be ensured. So I think as Mm. far as the delivery of aid is concerned, this will not, this again is not adding anything new because only a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago, United Nations Security Council already passed a resolution saying that there should be aid going into... into, So that uh, is why you will have these mixed opinions because on on the way here, I was going through social media. Some of them were hailing it as a great victory. Some of them were disappointed. Some of Mm -hmm. them said, well, this is exactly... We haven't moved uh, an inch. This is where we were two and a half weeks ago. This is where we are now. The only difference is that ICJ has given their opinion or their ruling. Anyways, there are many, many organizations out there like the Amnesty International or the EU, the European um, Union, who are expecting a full immediate implementation of the ICJ's interim ruling. How much of that will be done, how much How much of that Israel, Israel will take on board and go back to the ICJ, that is all that we will have to wait and see in the next coming 
weeks and months. With that, we're going to move on and continue, actually not continue, start with our first topic for the day. As we mentioned in the beginning, we're speaking about Argentina and if Argentina is heading in the right direction just for you. In November 2023, they had their elections and a libertarian economist named Javier Millet was uh, elected and he is someone, again, probably not something new, something that we've seen in the past as well with these elections and with these people, uh, these rulers, elected rulers, um, what their rhetoric is before, what their agenda is before, and then once the election has happened, what that change um, is brought about in the country or not. His Holiness in Koblenz in G- Germany 2012 said, a person's vote should be cast with the betterment of the nation in mind. Therefore, a person we uh, therefore a person must always remain obedient to Allah, to the Prophet and to the rulers of our nation. This is the same teaching given in the Holy Quran. And speaking about the Holy Quran, we find that in the Holy Quran, something that we've mentioned here as well before, is that it is the duty of the people of a country to elect the best possible among them. And it says that verily Allah commands you to make over the trust to those entitled to them and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. Now, Argentina is one of the or was one of the richest countries in the early 20th century, and now they're facing a biting econ- economic crisis after decades of decline. Um, before we go to our first guest, uh, the number for you, if you want to have your say, if you want to join the conversation, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Don't forget, we're asking you a question on our opinion poll on Instagram as well, which is about this topic. Do you think that Javier Millet is good for Argentina? Yes, no, unsure. But of course, if you want to add your comments on that, you're more than welcome to do so. We're going to go to our first guest for today. Joining us now is Emilia Simison. Um, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Inter-American Policy and Research at Tulane University. Good afternoon, Peace Pony, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Emilia. Hi, um, nice shining. Actually, I need to give an update. I'm in the UK now. Oh. I'm a lecturer in Queen Mary University. I started this month. Wonderful. So welcome to the UK, first of all. Hopefully you're you're liking our country. Um, Now, Emilia, what do you think sway the public in Argentina to bring something that we know now, right-wing leaders, into power? This is probably something that people were um, used to here in Europe, maybe, or sometimes even also in, uh, in Northern America. How did that happen? Yeah, it's actually a very interesting question because it, it, it was pretty surprising in some ways. Um, but I think that something that is like the main explanation of this, like there is a huge dissatisfaction with the status quo, right? Like Argentina has been going through like an economic crisis, like inflation rate is super high. It's above 100 uh, and increasing. Um, at the time of the elections was like 150. Like there is like, Poverty increasing, like, and also even more important than that in terms of the results of the election, like, the general perception of how the economy was doing was pretty negative. Like in surveys, like the when people were asked, most of them had like a negative perception of how the economy was doing. Um, and also something that contributed to to the results that we saw is that since the 
economic situation has been like getting worse in the last couple of years. Also, the, the level of people in, in Argentina that support democracy in surveys has also gone down. It's still comparatively high if we compare it with other like regions of or parts of the region, like parts of Latin America, but it's now around 68%, and it, it was like 90 not that many years ago. So I think that what happened is that a lot of people were willing to try something else, something different, even if it might have been something that could end up hurting democracy, just to like, like stop the status quo, right? Like getting something mm. new. I think that that was something very important in, in explaining why Millet. Um, Emilia, you you mentioned uh, the Javier Millet being, you know, an economist. Historically, especially one was to look at a few decades ago, Argentina has suffered from some of the highest inflation, mm-hmm. um, and the people of Argentina have suffered high prices, not the best of the quality of life and and high cost of living. And yeah, I, I don't uh, know if high cost of living could be like. It's not a constant for the last time. Like, I mean, it, it has been increasing, but I think that's something that's important for people from outside of Argentina to know is that we are a country that are also pretty used to live with inflation, uh, which I don't say, I am not saying that it's good, but um, like salaries are normally indexed by inflation as well. The problem is when inflation goes super high and then like you get uh, imbalance, right? And salaries cannot catch up with the inflation. But for a long time, we had inflation that, of course, it wasn't as high as this, but it was around 30%, but the salaries were, like, able to catch up. But 30, so in terms of, like, purchase power, we didn't lose as much. But 30% is a very high figure. I mean, one was to, if it was to compare it internationally. But I, 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 see, I see the point you're making. The point I was going to make was Javier being a, a, an economist, not a politician, do you think that swayed the opinion of the people that maybe someone who knows about finance or says they knows about finance and he was he's been always referred to as a libertarian economist as well mm-hmm. do you think words played and how he was described played um uh, a massive part in how people voted yes but I think that more than the fact that he was an economist, because like if we remember, like the run out, the run, like the second round, right, of the election was in between him and the current, like the, the at the time minister of economy, minister of economy, right? Um, so I think that more than the fact that he is an economist, I think that the fact that he presents himself as an outsider, which he very much is, right, uh, not not a politician in the common sense of the war, someone that is new to the politics. And, and I think that something that was very important in his campaign and that was well received by a big percentage of the population was this idea of like, he's not like the rest, right? Like he's something new. His discourse was like very much based on like, I'm again, and he used the word caste. And he was like, I am against these people. Like I'm different. Like the politicians are all the same. I'm not a politician. So I think that, of course, the fact that he's an economist economist factoring, but I think that it was more the thing that he was offering something radically new, that he didn't have experience in politics. Like, if we, there are other people that have been considered outsiders, for example, Trump or like Bolsonaro in Brazil, 
but they were not outsiders to the same level that Millet is an outsider. Like Bolsonaro in Brazil, he had had like a very long career in Congress, so he wasn't like an outsider, strictly speaking. But Millet had had only spent like two years in Congress, like two years, and be, before the last two years, he had never had any political position, right? So but, I think that that was something that was very attractive for people. I, I understand that he only had two years, but what exactly is it that he has brought to the table which is new? Um, I, I agree with your comparison with Bolsonaro, and, 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 but, but if you look around the world, populism is something that's become kind of a norm in, in a lot of places. Would, I don't know. Would you say, Javier, um, uh, Milei is, is also going down the populist uh, narrative in Argentina? I mean, yes, in a way of like, how do we define populist, right? Like, and if populist is like based on this idea of like an us against a them, like he's definitely doing that, right? It's like we, like he, something that impressed me a lot is like his first speech, his acceptance speech, right? When once he had won the elections, he started saying like, he started talking to the, the good Argentinians, right? Mm -hmm. So what he was making there, he was making a distinction. He wasn't talking to all Argentinians. He was talking to the good Argentinians, right? And that implies that there are Argentinians that are not good, right? Um, so I think he's, he's definitely doing this division between us and them that is typical of populist like politics, right? But what I'm saying that is different is in the terms of like, it's, it's a novelty for Argentina, right? We had a huge economic crisis at the beginning of the 2000s, 2001. And there was a lot of social mobilization and protest around that time. And, and many of the people that protest, one of the main uh, yeah, motives of that protest was like, everyone must go. Like, we don't want any of these politicians to come back. But in a couple of years, we were again picking politicians from the traditional parties. And I think that this is the first time that it's actually someone that comes from outside the the structure of the traditional parties in Argentina. Emilia, Millet has uh, promised to cut state spending by 15% of GDP, slash mm -hmm. the number of government ministries by almost half, dollarize the $600 billion Argentinian economy, uh, and eliminate the country's central bank. These are pretty yeah. radical measures. Yes. Uh, number one, do you think he will actually um, uh, go and actually do those things uh, while in government? You know, promising something during election campaign is something else. And actually doing these things uh, while in power is, is entirely different. And, and, and if so, what sort of impact do you think it will have on the economy? Yes. Okay. That, that, that's, there is a lot in that question. So let me start with, like, uh, the dollarization promise. Like, even himself and his campaign group, like after the, the elections, they say like, well, that, that this is not something that we can do in the first four years for ye for sure, right? There is no, the conditions are not set for that yet. So that's a promise that they themselves already took out of the table and, and not, they didn't took out of the table like permanently, like they, I think that they will still try to do it eventually, but like they acknowledge that it's not something you can do right now, given the current economic situation. But then something that is important to keep in mind is that 
Milley doesn't have support in Congress. Like he, again, because he's an outsider and he comes from like a new party, the party did pretty well in the last elections, but he didn't do well enough to have like a lot of representation in Congress. So for example, like we have a bicameral system, right? And in the Senate, he only has like seven out of 70, like legislators. Um, and that's why we are seeing this kind of like attempts to take like unilateral action because it's very hard to get any policy implemented when you have such a minority, right, in Congress. Um, so I think that that's something that we will see a lot, like how much will he be able to actually accomplish because he doesn't have support in Congress, right? Sure. Um, an estimated about 89 you know, close to 90% of Argentinians benefit in some way from the state's generous public fuel and transport subsidies. And there are other mm -hmm. uh, social safety net programs as well. Uh -huh. uh, drastic cuts in um, in public spending will have dramatic effects on uh, living standards and economic growth. How do you see that panning out? Yeah, I mean, I think that like, definitely there is, that's a problem with public spending and it needs to be cut. But we still have to see whether the measures that are going to be taken are actually going to be successful in like adding um, the, the spending and how they are going to be implemented in terms of like who is going to be like left without safety nets, right? Um, so, for example, like just to give a very concrete example, like cutting the number of ministers doesn't necessarily reduce. The, the money that goes to ministries, if you, what you are doing is concentrating more money in a single ministry, right? So I think that it's still too early to know if the new organization of ministries is actually reducing costs, right? Um, but there are some, like some subsidies that are going to disappear for sure. And, and again, it's kind of like, it's a trade-off because of course some acts are necessary if we want to have like to diminish like the, the the deficit that the government has right now and all the negative consequences that I have. It's, the important thing is like to know where are those cuts going to be made because also part of his promises is to cut like taxes, right? So if you're cutting taxes, you have less money, so you will have to cut more spending. Um, so I think that is a very different balance uh, that needs to be achieved. and. And again, given the situation in Congress and this stalemate, and also it's a pretty new government, right? Like it hasn't been in power for long. Hmm. I, we haven't seen the results yet, I think. So speaking about this, um, you had the, the, the cuts that Brother Daniel was talking about. You had uh, a major expansion of presidential powers. You had nine of 18 government ministries that have been closed the peso mm -hmm. was devalued more than 50% against the dollar and all of this plus more happened in the first month yes um how how is that going to work out in the next coming months that's a pretty so, steep start yes yes and i think that like something that is important is that um he still has a pretty high level of uh, approval among the population it's lower than it was when he won but it's still pretty high. Uh, so what most analysts think, and I agree, is that he's trying to push for the reforms 
while he still has the support of the population, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not a complete support, right? Like there was a huge like strike and demonstration a couple of days ago, right? But still in the surveys, he has a decent percentage of, of support. Um, so I think he's trying to like pass as much of, of his measures uh, before the negative consequences that a lot of people are going to feel uh, very like in, in the flesh, right? Um, can be seen. Uh, so he can keep that support. Uh, but Again, like something that is important and is a little bit hard to understand maybe from people that are not super familiarized with the Argentinian case, which nobody needs to be super familiarized with Argentinian institutions, um, is the way that decrees work in Argentina. So basically the president can uh, implement these unilateral um, decisions. And these decisions become law, like getting action until the Congress decides to overturn them. Hmm. But if Congress does nothing, or while Congress is deciding, these new measures are already being implemented. So I think that that's something very politically savvy that like Millet and his team did, that was they implemented this huge decree that cover a wide range of areas, like many, many things on the same decree, while Congress was still closed. Because like Congress uh, is not open like the 12 months of the year, right. so like Congress got open a little bit faster, but they knew that they were going to have that time in which the policies were going to automatically get started, right? And there were some legal challenges of some of these measures that like were stopped by by the judicial prop like power, but still there are some things that are happening. So for example just to mention a tiny thing, but, but pretty important, like the social insurance schemes like, are already increasing the prices because they, they were allowed through that measure, even though Congress hasn't yet decided on it. Um, so that was a way in which Millet could like, kind of bypass the, the minority that he has in Congress. And again, something that was it's not the first time that a president used a decree, right? Like decrees mm. have been used in Argentina, but it's the first time that a decree covers so many areas with a single like legislative piece, because also something that happens is that Congress can either reject all of it or approve all of it. Uh, so this idea of making putting everything together also makes it harder for Congress to negotiate, right? To, to, for legislators to agree or not. Um, so I think that that was like one of the ways in which he managed to do so much in so little time, right? So do you then expect, uh, Emilia, or, or should I say, how soon do you expect Argentina to go back to the IMF once again? I mean, he Argentina never left. Yeah, correct. Actually, uh, the IMF was pretty happy with what Argentina was doing already. Like, they, they had a really good relationship with the other candidate. I think that they were, they might be a little bit happier even with Millet, but in the sense of like, Argentina was in pretty good terms with the IMF still, but we have a huge, like we have to remember that like, it was less than eight years ago when Argentina contracted one of the highest like loans, like got one of the highest loans that the IMF had ever given a country, right? I mean, we are still paying that. 
Right. And finally, uh, Emilia, uh, I want to go back to the uh, dollarization. So fully adopting the dollar in an economy as diverse and, and dynamic as Argentina's, Argentina's uh, that in itself brings a host of problems. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And also I think that like we should remember that even if it wasn't pure dollarization, um, it wasn't that long ago when we had the convertibility plan in which one peso was one dollar, right? So we, we had our currency completely pegged to the dollar. Um, that ended up badly, right? It, it managed to control inflation. Yes, for a long time, it was like a, sort of like a situation that was even worse than this one, right? Like, we, I'm not saying that the inflation now is low, it's very high, but we are talking about 3,000% in the 80s, right? In the end of the 80s. Um, so that reform that was like a shock therapy kind of thing um, was successful in stopping inflation, but it ended up with one of the biggest social and political and economic crisis that Argentina has had. So I think that, it, I'm not saying that it won't work, but in order to work, you will have to have many other moving pieces that help you out in. I don't think that is a magic solution, and it was solved a little bit like a magic solution. Right, right excellent. Emilia Simpson, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, really appreciate this. This was very insightful. All the very best, uh, and have have a lovely be- weekend, and peace be with you. Enjoy your stay in yeah, the yeah, UK. Yeah, nice talking to you as well. Have lovely talking weekend. to you as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace be upon you. 0208-687-7878. Nothing new, actually, before the elections. All of that he kind of announced as well, isn't it? Um, his uh, shock therapy to undo the damage from generations of uh, uh, policies and big governments, his uh, speeches, as uh, we've just heard in the very beginning of this interview, they tapped into the voters' anger and yearning for radical solutions, something that probably we've seen in other countries as well. And his anti-establishment campaign that promised to stabilize Argentina's economy through deregulation, privatization, and austerity. And again, so this is one of those those messages that must have resonated with voters that are so desperate, that were so desperate for change after years of economic mismanagement. And he has been likened to no other than Donald Trump for his outspoken right-wing populist platforms, while others have compared him to Boris Johnson as well. Yes, and uh, it's not that he, um, he's he got a straight road ahead. He faces severe public and institutional resistance uh, for passing such dr- uh, dramatic and, and drastic reforms. Labor unions have organized nationwide strikes. There's mass demonstrations being planned against his moves to reduce worker rights and welfare benefits. As I said, you know, 89% of Argentinians actually benefit uh, from uh, from those benefits, the opposition has filed numerous uh, filed numer- numerous legal challenges questioning the constitution constitution constitutionality and legality of uh, Millet's privati- privatization and deregulation decrees. Judges have been suspended, um, and um, um, uh, uh, and portions of his uh, labor reform decrees um, have actually been challenged for overstepping executive authority. And with low approval ratings, ongoing street protests, and his allies lacking a congressional majority, Millet will struggle to implement his new vision is what it looks like. 
And when people are angry and when they're fed up with the current system, which in the case of Argentina, Argent, Argentina, Argentine, Argentina, Argentina, Argentina. Oh my goodness! Yeah. It is Friday after all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they may be drawn to you know more of a tear it all down approach, get it all changed, even if it doesn't align with their usual beliefs. And Argentinians may feel they have nothing left to lose after years of bad leadership and national decline. Now, this desire for change may also come from a deep-rooted sense of patriotism for the country and wanting things to change for the better, which is why voting for such a radical change through Malay might have been the option option for some people in Argentina. Patriotism, uh, as far as that is concerned, the, holy, the, um, the fifth successor to the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, he has been quoted saying the following, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him himself, taught that the love for one's nation is a part of faith. Thus, sincere patriotism is a requirement in Islam. To truly love God in Islam requires a personal person to love his nation. It is quite clear, therefore, that there can be no conflict of interest between a person's love for God and love for his country. As love for one's country has been made a part of Islam, it is quite clear that a Muslim must strive to reach the highest standards of loyalty to his chosen country, because that is a means of reaching God and becoming close to him. Hence, it is impossible that the love of a true uh, love a true Muslim holds for God could ever prove to be an in- impediment or barrier preventing him from displaying true love and faithfulness towards his country. However, this seems to have backfired because of how radical his plans and policies actually are. As we mentioned, the closing of uh, some of these government agencies, the protests that are happening, the many more radical things that he has done and all of that just within a month um, leave little room for some to, to to say that this is going to be a very difficult uphill battle for Malay, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think um, uh, this is a, this is an uphill battle that he's facing, and uh, not very surprising because uh, these are very very radical measures. I mean, abolishing the central bank, dollarization, dollari- uh, dollarizing the economy. Um, uh, you know, huge cuts on which ninety percent of the population depends on is not something. It's not going to be a cakewalk for him. I think that's uh, uh, that's pretty clear. Our next guest for today is Sofia Giuliano, and uh, we're going to speak to Sofia about uh, this uh, topic as well. She's an Argentinian citizen who is studying for a bachelor's degree in anthropology at the University of Buenos Aires. Good afternoon, PC Pony, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Sofia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, it's been a month. Um, a lot has happened, as we've just mentioned. What were your initial impressions of the new uh, president? Well, the first time I heard about him was around 2019. And my initial impression was that he was an erratic individual, unlikely to reach a political position. However, after, after the pandemic, his presence in the political scene began to grow, and he started gaining support. It was astonishing to me that a man with extreme right-wing beliefs garnered increasing backing from the Argentine people. He identified as a liberal libertarian, advocating for the superiority of the free market system and making statements such as social justice is an aberration. He preached for the deregulation of the economy, labeling the state as the virus causing Argentina's problems. 
Yet it wasn't just his ideas that propelled him to political strength. It was also his manner of expression. His discourse full of anger and hate was and still is intended to humiliate people. It remains challenging for me to comprehend how a person like him could lead a country and its people towards improvement. And in one month on, how do you think uh, has this played out? Is the general public uh, and their opinion, is that still the same as it was before the election or has that changed? I don't think it's the same. Um, it appears that since assuming the presidency, his public image has significantly declined, even among those who initially supported him. People, including his former voters, are now protesting against his controversial statements and reforms. Contrary to the improvement of the country and the well-being of the citizens, it seems his policies aim to increase privileges for the wealthy, exacerbating the financial struggles of workers, retirees, and those in need. And in the recent mega-reform implemented by DECRI under the slogan, There's No Money, introduced numerous measures against workers and people in need. This is an unconstitutional decree that has sparked multiple protests, culminating in a massive protest and strike last Wednesday to voice discontent against its detrimental effects. So I mentioned that you're a student. You're studying at University of Buenos Aires. Um, we, we mentioned that nine out of 18 government ministries, including those responsible for education, they have been closed. Are there any... Mm-hmm you know, specific initiatives or reforms proposed by the new government that you are personally concerned about or find particularly interesting? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the decree Millet's planning to implement doesn't bode well for our society and country. It not only infringes upon the rights of workers and retirees, but also involves the sale of our natural resources and lands. And it also eliminates subsidies for crucial cultural and scientific institutes. These are institutions that fill us and our nation with pride and contribute to national growth. I think it's imperative that the Congress votes against this unconstitutional decree. Right. And lastly there from my side, do you think that the new president should be focusing, or what exactly do you think should be his, his key priorities? What do you think that he should be focusing on during this term, which yeah. he probably uh, we are in We are in very difficult times right now. I think that during this term, it's highly important to focus on decreasing inflation in a manner that is not harmful to the economy of the workers and the people in need. And additionally to that, I think budgets for health and education should not be cut, neither reduced as they are crucial to the country's growth. You mentioned, sorry, I, I did say last last question, but if, if you allow, you mentioned the, the, um, the protests. Yeah, yeah, there was a protest last Wednesday. It was um, massive, and there was a strike also, and a lot of people went to the streets and protested against this decree that, again, is unconstitutional and uh, it only benefits the wealthy. I don't think that he has the goal to um, benefit the people in need. I think he he only is benefiting the 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 wealthy. 
And is there anything that you're expecting to come out of that? I'm guessing it's not just a one-off protest. This is going to no, keep yeah. happening. This is, yeah, this is going to keep happening. I think that people um, are right now or beginning to understand what this degree means. And I hope that people continue protesting and raising their voices uh, against this government. And I really hope that the Congress listens to these voices too and votes against this degree. Wonderful. An Argentinian citizen who's studying for a bachelor's degree in anthropology at the University of Buenos Aires, Sofia Giuliano, thank you very much for your time. Um, we wish you all the best for your future studies. And Dizakala. Uh, God bless you and peace be upon you. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. Same to you. Bye. Peace be upon you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. We are coming to the end of this part of the program. It his rise in Argentina comes, as we've spoken about, from Argentinians' anger over the mismanagement of the country. Again, something that we've seen in other countries and other parts of the world as well. However, fixing Argentina's broken economy will prove a tough <coughs> challenge for Millet and his big promises. Might not even solve the country's many problems. He also needs to make sure that he does not abuse his power by passing an unjust and unfair laws, as we've just heard from our previous guest, Sofia. Um, so to make um, Argentina a better place for the next generation as well as for the Argentinians to live in. He has a tough job turning his ideas into real changes, no doubt about that. And how well he will define his time as president, that is something that only time will tell. Anything else, gentlemen? Yes, please go ahead, Brother Q. Um Briefly, I know we're coming up to the hour. Um, <clears throat> Imam Marvan Gill is a missionary at uh, of the Abdi Muslim community within Argentina, mm-hmm. and uh, he introduced the second coming of the Messiah to Argentinians who are um, traditionally most of uh, South America are uh, Roman Catholic. Um, religion is a very, very big part of Argentina, um, and a lot of people uh, coming through the pandemic and, and over the past decade or so have been looking for answers. Um, and I think Imam Marwan Gill um, has done a fantastic job in um, letting people know um, the, the Islam Ahmadiyya and, and how the people who have been waiting for the Messiah to inform them that um, the Messiah has come. The, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community is the second coming of Jesus. Um, and uh, a lot of people who have been waiting... Um, have taken heed and and uh, the, the Allah, Islam is is on the up in Argentina. Um, it is a topic that we will come back to, I'm sure, uh, some other time uh, about Islam in South America. But as we are coming up to the hour, um, I just wanted to kind of put my two pence worth in there. Zakir, for those two pence, we're coming to we're coming we're we're going to the news uh, in just a little bit. But don't forget the question that we're asking you on Instagram. And the second topic that we will be talking about is the return of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him to Mecca. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us.
أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمدا You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show. And I just got saved by the end of that that jingle. Now, yes. these... Uh, if, if only, uh, you know, our listeners could, uh, could listen we to us off a, the record we should have a BTS, yeah, You know there was a show, uh, behind the Trevor Noah yeah, had this in between, in, yeah. in between the breaks. So I think, I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, it's a very bad idea. <laughs> I think it's a, I <laughs> Not think, with Kayum I think it's a fantastic <laughs> idea. I think <laughs> people... with Kayum I, I think people will realise the difference between... Um, academia and reality <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the kind of sometimes. life the kind of okay. life theory sometimes. street 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 fighters and academia no not street fighters people you know the, the you know it's it's the generals who who who, who play wars it's on a paper generational thing on, on paper and then the people who actually go out and give their lives uh, you know it's uh, it's a good debate to have. Maybe the, if the See, producers are listening, that's a that's a that's a good uh, program to produce. Yes. Anywho's this whole week we have had a very special series of shows on the various aspects and events that took place at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you. And this show today is dedicated to looking at the return of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to Mecca. And this return marks a very pivotal moment in the Islamic history as the Holy Prophet, accompanied by his followers, peacefully reclaimed the city of Mecca, a city that drove him out uh, some thirteen, some 10 years ago. This event signifies the triumph of justice, it signifies the triumph of forgiveness and the establishment of Islam in its birthplace. In fact, many well-known and highly respected British historians, biographers and authors have also testified to this. One of them is Sir William Muir. He writes in his book, Life of Muhammad, the long and obstinate struggle against his pretentious, uh, pretensions maintained by the inhabitants of Mecca might have induced its conqueror to mark his indignation in indelible traces of fire and blood. But Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, accepting a few criminals granted a universal pardon. The example of incomparable tolerance and general amnesty impressed the people of Mecca tremendously. Within a few days, a very large number of them took refuge under the banner of Islam. How great of an injustice is it for an authority such as Toynbee to allege that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, made the people of Mecca accept Islam using force and coercion. So join us in this hour of the program as we... Explore the unfolding events from the preparations to return to Mecca, delving into the significance of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and ultimately tracing that remarkable conquest of Mecca, where he marched into that city, as I said, that drove him out with 10,000 of his followers. Yeah, plenty to unpack here. I think yeah, the uh, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah um, 
and then the spread of Islam. I think um, uh, we can talk about jihad, um, the jihad of actually uh, <clears throat> jihad of spreading the message through um, to very peaceful means. And I think that's when Islam spreads. So I think yeah, a, a lot here to talk about. But if I can, uh, brother, as if I can start by asking you maybe uh, a question um, in the spirit of having a discussion about around the conquest of Mecca. We've all grown up um, hearing about this, reading about this, talking about this conquest. Um, What moment within that conquest, what, what one thing stands out for you about that conquest? I think that that's a very good question. I think the the highlight or the uh, you know the 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 main point probably was when he pardoned everyone. But I think I for me personally, it's it starts right when when he when he marched in, in the sense that there are narrations that talk about his his humility and his mm. modesty, right? And Same imagine here. that you yeah. are the victor the victor mm. and it's not just you you have conquered a place any place no this is the place he was born in this is the place that held spe- you know special significance for him for many reasons as i said so his birthplace the, the 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 place of his ancestors then most and foremost probably because of the kaaba which was the first house built for the worship of god almighty this was also the place where he received his first revelation the start of Islam took place in that in that in that city, and it was also unfortunately the city and the people of that city that took the lives of many of his friends, mm. that took the lives of his, his family members, people that he knew, um, and the people of that city <coughs> took the lives of his relatives as well. His uncle Hamza was 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 one of them, and then you have this man who has all of this. This is all that happened to him. He leaves that city. People don't leave him alone. He goes through two major battles, if not more. But two of them were were major in in the history of Islam. And long story short, again, we'll we'll, we'll go into the details throughout the the program. But at the end, he has ten thousand people on his side, mm-hmm. which is also something new. They were always outnumbered. The numbers were always against him. It was one to three or being outnumbered in in every battle that they that they fought and here he is camping in front of the city outside the city gates a night before just to give the meccans an idea of the power and the might that he has with him so they they lit the fires and the people of Mecca, Abu Sufyan at that time, who wasn't a Muslim, he, he came to see the Prophet and, and he was so impressed and he was so in awe. Hmm. And then comes the time where he marches in. Now, as I said, he's the one who conquered this. There was no resistance and he had full rights to do anything that he pleases. Hmm. And you would walk in there, your your head held high, your chest out, hmm. and telling the people this is who I am but when we see and when we read the narrations of that p- particular moment they say that his 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 head was was bowed down it was he was so um how would you say 
so close basically to to the saddle or to the camel he was he was, he was bowing so much exactly. that was, that was uh, his that, his forehead was touching almost, the, yeah. the the neck of the camel i yes. think yeah and <clears throat> and that's the man who was going to judge over all of mecca hmm. who was entering as the victor who was entering as the victor yeah, and absolutely. there he was in his humility in mm-hmm. his in his in his modesty in his humbleness in front of god almighty and and the whole time first till the last moment praising god almighty thanking him and and giving all credit to to god to for his almighty, victory yeah, absolutely there is one more thing that actually stands out you know this was the this is the thing for me as well but there is one more thing which which stands out for me and which um speaks of his uh, holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him his you know his immense intelligence and his acumen um and you know as you said he was entering a city where he had been um forced to to leave he um uh, you know there are all sorts of atrocities were committed against the muslims there and emotions in his army were running high at that time because they a, a lot of people uh, probably even expected that justice will be served um against the people who had perpetrated some of those atrocities and uh, and he was pardoning everybody hmm. and therefore there was you know there was a feeling amongst some muslims at that time at least you know what uh, why uh, you know these are the people and we are well within our rights even under islamic law to uh, to do justice and to um uh, 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 uh you know to punish them uh and and you know his way of dealing or one of his ways his very intelligent ways of dealing with that was to give a, the flag of the army to one of the former slaves of the mm. army hazrat bilal mm. that anybody who, who came under that flag was then set free uh, uh was not safe. to be punished yeah. um exactly was safe and that then uh, you know suddenly pacified a lot of people because you know he was a black man think about this 1400 years ago mm. who was formerly formerly a slave and he was holding a flag and and holy prophet was saying you you go under his flag and you'll be safe so essentially you know taking the um uh it, it, taking the feeling of revenge out from yeah. from hazrat bilal as well that and and giving him that that sort of importance and also ho- making his former enemies humble yeah. in such an intelligent um and in such a non-violent way and at the same time upholding the dignity and the respect of the chiefs of mecca yeah. so abu sufyan's house again he was not a muslim at that and time about them enemy uh, exactly uh, throughout the 10 years one of the chiefs of mecca who made his life uh, with 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 other chiefs of mecca uh, a living nightmare his house was also declared a safe haven mm. so if you go to his house if you seek refuge in his house you, you, there's you nothing you, yeah. there's nothing that you had to be afraid of yeah absolutely yeah and then yeah that goes to show not only um the extent of his intelligence but also the the extent of uh, his patience but there's a lot of history that led up to this very specific point Six years after his migration to Medina, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, saw in a vision that he was performing the circuit of the Kaaba 
with a party of Muslims. Allah the Almighty mentions this in the Holy Quran and he says in chapter 48 verse 28, Allah indeed fulfilled for his messenger the vision. You shall certainly enter the sacred mosque, but he knew what you knew not. He has in fact ordained for you besides that a victory near at hand. Now relating this vision to his companions, he asked them to prepare for a journey to Mecca for the purpose of performing the circuit. The Prophet announced that he would perform the circuit with 1,500 men and then returned to Mecca. And even though he had no intent against anybody in Mecca and wanted to enter a treaty with the Quraysh, where the ruling party or the tribe of Mecca at that time, to perform the circuit in peace. However, the Meccans, they had already decided not to give him any permit or allow him and his party to enter for whatever reasons and, and sent out a strong force to the north to intercept him. Now, the Prophet had also he had approached Mecca from the west, but he refrained from entering the limits of the sanctuary and made a camp a few miles outside these limits and announced that he would accept any conditions of the Meccans or what the Meccans might choose to impose upon his party during the period that would be in Mecca. And we have to remember, in that vicinity which uh, it surrounds the Kaaba, the Holy Quran and God Almighty has strictly forbidden that any kind of fighting, any kind of quarrel, any kind of um, you know disagreements should be happening. So he took that very, very serious. Although, again, this time he had 1,500 people with him, but he decided that they are here to perform their acts of worship in peace and they're here to abide by and hear, adhere by the rules uh, and the regulations set by God Almighty and nothing would deter them from that. And here is, again, one of the milestones, I believe, in the history of Islam, which is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And uh, <clears throat> as you said, the chiefs of uh, Quraysh uh, in Mecca absolutely had no intent uh, to be at peace with the Prophet and actually sent an envoy to him informing him that on no account would he and the Muslims be ever permitted to enter Mecca, not least in that year. <clears throat> the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, then sent one of his principal companions, Hazrat Usman, um, may God have peace be on him, into Mecca to talk to the chiefs but again, it came to nothing. Eventually, the Meccans did agree to discuss the terms of peace with Muslims. They proposed certain conditions, all of which the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, accepted. This treaty is known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And as, if you go through, we will actually go through some of the points yeah. uh, and the terms of that treaty. Imagine... Okay, let, let's just go through the points and, I'll, yeah. and then I'll ex probably explain what what I mean. Mm. So there, the first point was, the first term was that there will be an armistice between the two parties and no fighting for the next 10 years, one. Second was that a person or tribe who wishes to join the Prophet and, and the Muslims and to enter into any agreement with him is free to do so. Likewise, any tribe or any person who wishes to join the Quraysh or the Meccans and to enter into any agreement with them is free to do so. And listen to this. If any Meccan went to Medina, right? If anybody from Mecca went to Medina saying that I want to join you, I want to be a Muslim, what were the Muslims supposed to do? They would return him to Mecca. But if any Muslims from Medina went to Mecca, he would not be returned. Yeah. So 
I want to become a Muslim. I go to Medina, travel four days, five days. And based on that treaty, I had to return back because the Muslims were not allowed to accept me. And however, if one of the Muslims said, you know what, I no longer wish to be a part of this religion or this faith, then I will go to Mecca and everything would be good and fine. If any young man or any or one whose father is alive goes to the Prophet without permission from his father or guardian, will be returned to his father or guardian. But if anyone goes to the Quraysh of Mecca, will not be returned. And fifthly, this year and that year when when you know, this treaty was was signed, the Muslims will go back without entering Mecca. But next year, the Prophet and his followers can enter Mecca, spend three days perform the on the umrah or the circuit around the kaaba and then go back there they are at the at the doorstep yeah. right there at the at the at the walls of Med- of mecca they can probably even see the kaaba mm. and they're not allowed to enter and again so the conditions were if you read it not very fair you can very do one-sided, this one-sided actually one-sided i can do this you mm. cannot do this yeah i can return them you cannot return them so that that treaty and the terms of that treaty were not only difficult for the Muslims to 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 understand and to accept, and one-sided, but also humiliating, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, you've come all this way. Yeah, they are not letting you in, and they're setting the terms. And again, so before all of this started, when 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 the when one of the emissaries from from the Meccans came, when the treaty was being signed and was being written, basically, it started. With Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim in the name of Allah the Gracious and Merciful. Mm-hmm. Now the person from the Meccan side is like, hold on, listen, um, I I don't know which what which God are you talking about here? Yeah. We don't accept these terms. Mm-hmm. Um, we know Allah, but we don't know who's the Gracious and who's the Merciful. So what are we supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. And the second point was this treaty is between uh, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, the Messenger of Allah, and you know whoever the Meccans yeah. again that was another point they said well we don't accept you as the messenger of Allah yeah. who are you to, to to write that and Muslims were incensed oh, I mean imagine they, they, that they, they were absolutely furious when these things happened and when these things were demanded when his especially uh, the name of Allah was uh, was asked to be removed and when uh, his uh, his 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 position as the messenger of Allah which is part of your proclamation yeah. of faith basically yeah, yeah. And he he he. Applied. But he readily agreed. He, he agreed. Now, Caliph Ali, um, who was also his 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 cousin, but at that time, he was the one who was writing that. And the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said to him, "Okay, then cancel it out. Mm-hmm. Write uh, Muhammad, uh, the son of Abdullah." Yeah. And. <laughs> You know, Ali said, oh, you know what? Could, I, yeah. I can't I can't do that, Prophet mm-hmm. of Allah. How how can I cross this out? How can I say or basically mm-hmm. how can I bring myself, how to, can I bring myself to, to to this point where I I'll cross out Rasulullah meaning that you are the messenger of Allah? I, I can't do this. And the Prophet did it himself. I mean, mm-hmm. he had a little bit of knowledge here and there. He probably had an idea which words were talking about him being the pro- the messenger of Allah, and he did it himself. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a person that when we talk and we hear in 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 in, in the media, social media, mass media, mm-hmm. he is the one who's being portrayed as 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 arrogant, as, uh, as violent, blood, as, as bloodthirsty, as bloodthirsty. Even, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, these totally are the opposite. Exactly. So these are all traits of people who are so full of themselves, so power hungry that. 
they're not ready to compromise on anything. Mm. But he did it for the sake of peace. And and he did it against the wishes of his very top generals yes. and, and, and very top emissaries. Yeah. And he, he was repeatedly asked, are you not the prophet of God? Yeah. Do we not believe in God? Did you not have that dream? You know, he was repeatedly asked yeah. that question from his from the closest of his um, his generals and his um, and his uh, and his followers, and uh, you know, almost uh, you know, they were they were incensed and they they just couldn't believe what was happening, uh, and his and their faith was tested to the hell, and, yeah. and and they would come to him and said, "If you are the prophet of God, if you've seen that dream." Uh, and if you if that dream was from God, why are we doing this? Why are we not going? You you just give us a command, and we are willing to fight these people. And they were ready. Yeah, they're ready. Oh, look, we'll, we'll lay down our lives. We, we came with this with this intention yeah. of uh, of of doing anything possible and anything needed, but he 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 told them not to. So on the way back to Medina, God Almighty revealed to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and described this treaty as a victory and that's all that mattered in chapter 48 verse 28 the uh, god almighty states he has in fact ordained for you besides that a victory near at hand that is also very very significant because you see here you are uh, uh, coming back uh, from after signing a treaty which you are cons- which in your mind i mean talking about the, the followers there of the of prophet muhammad the peace and blessings of allah be upon him who considered that a defeat yeah who considered that um, as um, uh, as 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 a big retreat? Who considered that as um, as uh, as an affront, even humiliation? A humiliation, yeah. and and here is God revealing that uh, we have actually given you a great victory. Yeah, I mean, just 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 imagine, just just think about uh, you know God's ways, and just think about the significance of uh, of these verses and what exactly that victory is. We'll come to that in a bit, but before. When we talk about what happened immediately after the Treaty of Adabia, there were many instances where the the, chi, the Quraysh, meaning the ruling tribe of Mecca, they went against the, the treaty whilst the, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had remained absolutely loyal to, to the letter and to the word of that treaty. And after agreeing to the conditions of the treaty, Abu Jandal, who was the son of Sahel bin Amr, who was a prominent leader of the Quraysh, he promised um, or he presented himself to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Again, he came from from Mecca. So if you remember, I think it was the third or fourth or fifth um, uh, point, that or the third and fifth, fourth, that if a Meccan went to Medina, the Muslims would return him. And if a, any young man whose father is alive goes to the Prophet without permission, he the Muslims had to return him. So here was Abu Jandal. He was there and he was beaten he was in shackles for accepting Islam mm. and he begged the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him to give him amnesty and to give him protection to accept him and to let him stay in Medina mm. so Hail bin Amr he protested he, I mean I mean, uh, he said that the agreement between us was concluded before this man meaning um, uh, Sohail bin Amr's own son he, he came to you and now you see this man, he came all this way for you, he's in shackles, he's been beaten, and he's begging you to give him amnesty, he's begging you to accept him and not send him back to the place where he came from. And his, this is what the Prophet replied. He said, O oh, Abu Jandal, 
be patient and control yourself, for God will provide relief and a means of escape for you and those of you who are helpless. We have made peace with them, and we and they have invoked God in our agreement, and we cannot deal falsely with them. So, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is sent him back to Mecca because this was yeah. part of that treaty. It's already been agreed. And uh, yeah, I want to read that that verse that we were talking about earlier as well. This is from, as you said, uh, chapter 48. And I was Rahim, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. And it says, it states, Inna which actually means, verily, we have granted thee a clear victory. Hmm. Now, here you are coming back after signing what many think is a humiliating defeat. And here is God. Uh, you know, talking about granting thee a clear victory. Yeah. So, I mean, apples and oranges, uh, if you think about it. But, you know, so God's ways, it's it, it's just, if you just read about, you know, a little bit about the history of uh, of the life of the Prophet, um, and I would urge our listeners to do that. It's, it's just, uh, the evidence is so compelling about uh, about how God was with him every step of the way, every second of um, uh, of uh, of the day, and the question that you ask yourself is: in in this whole period of twenty three years, while the Prophet peace be upon him had 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 proclaimed to be the messenger of God, this party of Muslims grew very slowly, and the small group of Muslims that was there in the time of the Prophet, when it, when when he was in Mecca were forced to firstly hide their beliefs when they openly declared their beliefs we know exactly what happened the persecution the the opposition the the migration the boycott um etc etc all of this in 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 that 23 years what do you think would be the best time to to expand or what people usually believe and think mm. Mm-hmm. is what were the reasons and when did Islam expand exponentially? Islam was spread to the sword. Is, with, is with the, the sword, exactly. Yeah. So they went out, rampaged, and went through mm-hmm. all the villages and the towns and, and, and the whole country, they plundered everything, forced everyone to believe and accept. If you didn't, then, well, you know, you're going to go make your, meet your maker. What, when, when did Islam spread? How did Islam actually spread? This was the time. In the times of peace, when they knew if we don't breach this, and as we've just heard, the Prophet was in no um, uh, mindset to breach that because once the commitment has been made, it's been made. And in that time, he was able to write the letters to the different kings and rulers around Arabia. It was in this time that they could peacefully approach other people, spread the message of Islam, preach about Islam. And it was also in this time that the majority of of uh, of Muslims who then joined him um, when the conquest of Mecca happened, that they accepted Islam. Because now in peace, they could listen to the message. They could preach the message without having anything to be afraid of that they will be kicked out, they will be attacked, or they will be persecuted. No. They could preach what they wanted. And the message of Islam, again, was so appealing to the majority of, of the people that it was um, uh, preached to that they had absolutely no choice. And you had the examples of Caesar. You had the example 
of uh, the Chosros of, of Persia. You have the examples of other leaders around uh, Arabia and other rulers of, of, uh, uh, of the world around Arabia who some of them accepted the message and they were very respectful to the, to the, to the ambassadors and to the messengers that came with the letter of the Prophet. But he also, of course, had some who rejected. But they had no fear now. They could openly express and invite people to the religion of Islam. And thousands converted during that time between um, Hudaybiyah and the um, uh, the conquest of Mecca. Whereas uh, the the, uh, the size of the, the Muslim um, strength was only in, in hundreds yeah. before that. And all of that happened within a year. Because in the next year, the following year, it was actually the Meccans who committed a breach of that treaty by sending forces in alliance with the Banu Bakr tribe to attack the Khuza, which is a tribe in alliance with the Muslims, and they killed many of their people. And, again, so if you had one side of abiding by the conditions set in that treaty, which is the points one to five that we mentioned, another side was also that if one of the allies was attacked, they had the full authority, they had the full right to then come to the assistance of those tribes and also, you know, make sure that the treaty is null and void if one of the sides breaks that uh, that that treaty or one of one of the points mentioned in that treaty. So as soon as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was informed of this attack by the Banu Bakr tribe to uh, that attacked the Khuzat tribe, he sent a word to the Quraysh, meaning the ruling party of Mecca, to pay ransom for the persons killed or terminate their alliance with the Banu Bakr or treat the Treaty of Hudaybiyah as abrogated. Now, of course, you had the rulers of Mecca, again, still in their bubble, still in their fantasy world of there is no power on this world, there is no power in Arabia, for that matter, actually, that has the the power, that has the strength to attack us or to terminate, uh, to, um, to dictate any terms to us, we're the ones who are going to do that. We are the ones who rule this country. And so they arrogantly reply that they're neither going to pay ransom or uh, nor are they going to te- terminate their alliance with the Banu Bakr. But they're ready to abrogate the treaty with the Muslims. And so it happened. This was the breach. This was the reason that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, marched back to Mecca with 10,000 saints. Not because he just had the numbers, not because he wanted to, not because he was able to. There was a treaty. That treaty was broken. The terms were breached. And that actually gave him the authority, that gave him the legitimate reason to march Mecca. You know, we're talking about the conquest of Mecca, and I've been listening to <coughs> the build-up to the Holy Prophet and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him leading the march to Mecca. And I like the word you used. A lot of people say ten thousand soldiers. They weren't soldiers. No. And that's an important point. There, there were normal people who, who had accepted Islam. They they were saints in, in practice. But to emphasize the point here that 
the Holy Quran is the word of God and the Holy Prophet is an embodiment of what the Holy Quran is. So the attributes that were shown by the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, couldn't have been more clearer when he marched on Mecca. First and foremost, what he practiced was forgiveness. Now, let's put that into context. His dearest uncle um, and companion, Hamza, hmm. may Allah be pleased with him, he, he was martyred in the most brutal um, way possible by um, um, by one of the slaves of uh, Abu Sufyan's wife, Hapshi. I think it was Hapshi? It was. Um, Abu Sufyan's wife? Hind. Yeah, but it, it, she, she, she had a slave. Yeah, she, uh, assassin basically. Yeah. A, uh, what was it? Uh, not Somalian, but um, Abyssinian? Abyssinian. Um, Hapshi, yes. That's, yeah. That was his name. That was his name. And, um, and Habar, sorry. Yeah, Habshi was different. Habar. Yeah, Habar, Habar was, was his name, yes, yeah. Habar. And when when he um, managed to kill um, Hamza, may Allah be pleased with him, Hind, Abu Sufyan's wife, went and uh, cut uh, cut out uh, liver. His, his, his liver and, and she basically mutilated his body. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. So can you imagine the 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 hurt, the sorrow, the pain that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, felt, yet he chose to forgive. Can you imagine the number of people who were brutally killed? Um, can you imagine the persecution? We haven't spoken of the persecution that was suffered, in which the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, lost his wife. You, if you name the the atrocity one can 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 list, even in today's day and age, um, and and take it back fourteen hundred years, that was suffered by the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and his companions. Yet, when he walked into Mecca, he forgave everyone. Yeah. He 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 made a list of of what can and cannot be done. And as you brothers have uh, already listed, that anybody who goes and, and resides in uh, in Abu Sufyan's house, anybody who's under the umbrella of Abu Sufyan, anybody who goes to Mecca, there was all these different places that anybody would be able to go, and they would be um, they would be safe. That would be their safe ground. Mm. And so many non-Muslim historians have written about the the bloodless conquest yeah. of Mecca Absolutely. it is it is i mean and 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 forgive me i forget the name of this english writer who wrote that it he he referred to it as as one of the greatest conquest in the history of man because of of the fact that it was bloodless and because so much forgiveness so much protection 
and so much of the human rights that we talk about today were practiced and initiated at that stage 1400 odd years ago that they have yet to be matched in the past 1400 years when it when it comes to warfare in fact to even use the word warfare would be wrong because it wasn't a war the holy prophet and peace and blessings of allah be upon him they they literally um rode into um and uh, in into mecca and treated everybody with friendliness people who had hated him a day before forget about weeks before or months before if if uh, you know abu sufyan that we talk about so much you know on the day that he on, on the night when the when the army came and uh, um, and the caravan was just outside of mecca at night time he looked over and he saw these lights of of uh, of 10000 men and saints who had uh, set their caravan aside outside of Mecca and even then when he was taken to the holy prophet of peace and blessings of allah be upon him and he said i still have doubts and yet on the day he was given the 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 protection of the holy prophet it's those attributes that that we need to we need to highlight here because yeah the this notion that islam is a violent religion just doesn't make sense it is a false allegation it's a wrong allegation that gets hurled upon um islam as as a religion because Islam within itself is what the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him lived. And again the reason why conquest of Mecca is important is because so many different aspects of how one should live, how one should treat someone, how forgiveness should be practiced, how um so many so many different aspects how how to treat people the poor the, the the you know the provisions that were provided to people at the time of the conquest of mecca and the brotherhood that was introduced at the conquest of mecca has been unseen in the past 1400 years and that is the true islam and yes there has been over time a lot of people who have diluted this teaching of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him and which has a lot of islam has been misrepresented by the people themselves who have misunderstood and 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 have used uh, examples which they cannot attribute to the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him but people who came after him and they have wrapped it up in traditions and 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 innovations and different interpretations and they have wrapped it up and 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 called it islam but that yeah. isn't the islam that the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him absolutely brought. not and uh, to your point i'd like to quote from uh, a book written by sir muhammad zafullah khan it's called muhammad and i quote from that book The West has with a very few honorable exceptions through 14 centuries consistently ignored all that was patently good and beneficent in the life of the holy prophet and in Islam and when confronted by his example and his doctrine has taken shelter behind flimsy 
and untenable excuses. Its favorite objection has been that the sword spread Islam. By whose sword? The Holy Prophet was one, was but one man against the whole world. Through 13 long years of his ministry at Mecca, under the severest persecution and the gravest provocation, he and his small band of followers set the example of steadfast, law-abiding citizens who offered no violence against violence. Finally, some of them, having left for Abyssinia, the greater part of them migrated to Medina, and the Holy Prophet followed them later. His Meccan enemies should have then left him alone, calling it a good riddance. But they would not leave him and and his uh, his followers in peace. It was they who unsheathed the sword against him and his followers. It was then that he was under divine command compelled to take up the sword in defense of freedom of conscience, which is proclaimed in positive and emphatic terms by the Holy Quran. It was the persistence of Quraysh in the use of force against the Muslims, much inferior to them in numbers and equipment of every type that brought ruin upon Quraysh. The same happened after all, the same happened after the fall of Mecca to other tribes. The facts speak eloquently in this, as in all other contexts. End quote. Hmm. Now, what was the purpose of going back to Mecca? Why, why go back to that city, go back to that town, while he lived a relatively peaceful, relatively good life in Medina? Now, this was a city that had given him refuge. This was a city the people of welcomed the, the Prophet with open arms. They enjoyed his blessed company for, for many years. But why go back? Where the cube? Why? Why did he go back? Yeah, he broke. They broke the treaty. Yeah, one one thing is, it's good and fine. But why did they go back? Go back to Mecca. Yeah. Well, that's where it all started, didn't it? And then, it, when the Holy Prophet and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he entered, what was the first place he went to? That's was the it. was the Holy Kaaba. There we go. And you know, to destroy the. the the victory isn't about victory over people, but it was the uh, it was a declaration of the unity of one God, and the destruction of the idols in the Holy Kaaba was the true victory of Mecca. And that there is one God, and 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 Muhammad, my peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the messenger of God. That was the victory of Mecca. That was the true embodiment of God Almighty. That was a, that that was what the word of God in the Holy Quran that was put into practice yeah. when he entered the Holy Kaaba and when he destroyed and he and, and every single I think three hundred and sixty yeah something like that three hundred and sixty yeah. or three hundred sixty one idols yeah that were placed in the Kaaba that was the conquest of Mecca. Um, remind me, the the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was uh, in the sixth year of uh, Hijrah, right? Of uh, of the migration to Medina, uh, brother Azai, is that is that right? Uh, yes. So if that was in the sixth year, until that year, 
And so six years off of after having migrated to Medina and 13 years of his ministry before that in Mecca, uh, where he was he and his followers were constantly persecuted. So if you add six to 13, that's 19 years. After 19 years of his ministry, he had in Hudaybiyah, according to um, uh, 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 the statistics given in this uh, in this book by Sir Zafrullah, the Holy Prophet was accompanied by 1,500 Muslims in Hudaybiyah. So that was the sixth year mm. of Hijrah. And in less than two years, when the conquest of Mecca happened, which was in the eighth year of Hijrah, he went in, as we talked about, with 10,000 mm. devoted Muslims. So that is, you know, just, just shows in black and white how Islam was really spread. Yeah. 1,500 followers, 1,500 Muslims, from year one of his ministry to year 19, yeah. including the six years of the migration to um, uh, to Medina, six, six years in Medina and 13 years in Mecca. And um, in, in year eight, two years later, 10,000 followers, 10,000 Muslims. Two years, eight and a half thousand. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the point that we were trying to get across before that as well. And to, to take out, I think, this misconception out of out of people's minds that it was through violence, it was through bloodshed, it was through coercion that Muslims spread their very dangerous religion around the world. It was never the case. I mean, look, again, what happened after the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, decades after when... Uh, the the rightly guided caliph, uh, caliph caliphate ended after that which we had uh, just uh, worldly rulers after which we had tyrants after which we had you know despots and whatnot all of this was foretold but to judge a whole religion on the actions of uh, parties that came decades and centuries after him is not a fair judgment. If you want to judge, if you want to find out about the truth, if you want to know what the teachings and what the implementations of those teachings were in actual, in real life, then you have to look towards the Prophet of Islam. You have to look towards his example. Because as Brother Dania mentioned, he was the living embodiment of the Quran. If you want to see anyone who lived with his own example, who showed with his own example that this is what God means when he speaks about this verse. This is what God means when he uh, reveal, when, when he speaks about the religion of Islam. Look towards me. And even God said that if you love me, if you want to find me, if you want to come to me, then look at the example of the Prophet. Go through the Prophet. If you love me, love the Prophet and I will be close to you. And as Brother you mentioned, the main point was the main mission of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that was assigned to him when he was alone in that very tiny little cave, Cave Hira. When the uh, Archangel Gabriel came to him for the first time, he said to him that read in the name of your Lord, read in the name of your Lord who created you. And that was the message. He was sent to the whole entire world that, look, tell them there is no multiple gods. There is not even two gods. There's only one, and that is me. How you want to call me, how do you address me, that's a different story. But the the main point of Islam, the reason why Islam was sent, is to find peace, to find that uh, tranquility, to find that 
submission to God Almighty and find that peace through submission to God Almighty in the one and only God. And as each idol fell and he smashed each idol himself that had been installed in, 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 the, in the court of the Kaaba, he recited the verse that truth has come and falsehood has vanished. Falsehood does indeed vanish fast, which is found in chapter 17, verse 82. You know, the literal meaning, I'm sure, how many times we have used the word and so many people say, the literal meaning of Islam is to submit and to submit to the will of God. And the will of God is peace. Now, my question to you is, a word and a religion, the name of a religion, which means peace, how can you spread peace by violence? Does that make sense? What do you call that? Oxymoron? Yeah, exactly. And even a Muslim is someone who radiates peace. Yeah. Right? A Muslim someone who radiates peace through his actions. So I am committing violence as a peaceful person. So, which, you know, it's irrational. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And that is what we are trying to come across and put across here that the, the Islam is peace. It's true peace in and around the world if one was to um, you know, connect what we are discussing today to the, to the events of the world today and if one was to look to connect to what His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, his Holiness Mr. Masur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, has been talking about in Friday sermons and in addresses around the world. He's been talking about how peace can only be brought if the presence of God, of one God, yeah. the presence of one God is present, which is what is missing, which is what the conquest of Mecca was about, that the, de the declaration of one God. And... Everything that what Islam is about at times of war. Because if one was to, again, look at the conquest of Mecca, um, the Holy Prophet didn't need to do any of that. He could have just rushed in and got what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted it. But he, cho yeah. he chose not to do that because that is not who he is. That is not who he was representing. He was there as the messenger of God Almighty and peace was the key ingredient justice was the key ingredient forgiveness amnesty hmm. was the key ingredient some of these words if one was to look at these words and apply them in today's world is what is missing justice is missing forgiveness is missing amnesty is missing peace is missing God is missing and this forgiveness this peace that the muslims at that time again you think about it there was a lot of history behind this years and years of persecution imagine today that you have free hand in executing your revenge and executing your uh, you know punishment to people that have wronged you not revenge. wronged you but they have persecuted you in the most gruesome and most cruel way and you choose forgiveness. It This is not something that comes lightly. But if you have the conviction, if you have the belief in God Almighty, it does. It it comes with that, with that conviction that 
if not in this world god almighty will give me the reward of my perseverance will give me the reward of my patience in the next life and it was the belief in god that enabled him that enabled the companions to forgive because if you take out that equation of god what's left hatred revenge that's all there is and i think this is again correct me if i'm wrong but that's probably something mm-hmm. that you're trying to say yeah. in the world that we live in today this lack of accountability this lack of belief in god has led us to the point where we do not care about the emotions about the feelings about the sentiments of anyone else but ours it's dehumanizing we don't we look to dehumanize whereas the holy prophet and peace and blessings of allah be upon him was doing the total opposite was defining humans for what they should be yeah absolutely to um to end uh, this show can i just read an extract from uh, one of the orientalists um, who wrote on uh, prophet muhammad the peace and blessings of allah be upon him i got one as well so okay i'll be quick <laughs> mr montgomery watt um and um he's written his book uh, called muhammad at medina and uh, at the end of that book he writes the more one reflects on the history of muhammad and of early islam the more one is amazed at the vastness of his achievement circumstances presented him with an opportunity such as few men have had but the man was fully matched with the hour had it not been for his gifts as a seer statesman and administrator and behind these his trust in god and firm belief that god had sent him a notable chapter in the history of mankind would have remained unwritten it is my hope that this study of his life may contribute to a fresh appraisal and appreciation of one of the greatest of the sons of adam and of course the promised messiah the founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community in his book blessings of prayer which is available on islam he states have you any notion what was the strange event that occurred in the wasteland of arabia when hundreds of thousands of the dead were revived within a few days and those who had been misguided through generations exhibited divine complexion and those who were blind began to see and those who had been dumb began to utter words of divine wisdom and the world underwent a revolution which no eye had seen before and no ear had heard of do you know how all this came about it was a supplications during dark nights of one who had lost himself in god which caused a revolution in the world and showed such wonders as could never have been expected from that unlettered and helpless one the holy prophet of islam may the peace and blessings of god almighty be upon him and that was the message that the holy prophet of islam came to give to the world that there is a god who listens to the prayers of his supplicant with his own life he has shown us that nothing is Im- insurmountable nothing is impossible if you have that full conviction the 100% conviction that there is a living god who will aid and who will assist his servant no matter what the obstacle no matter what the hurdle no matter what the odds are and that at the end of the day 
is something that we wanted to get across to you as a listener. If you want to find out more, if you want to learn more about the Prophet of Islam, then there are countless books written about him. You can go on alislam.org and find out what the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has written about him as well as some other biographies on his life. From all of us here, thank you very much for listening in. Jazakallah for all your time. Hania Javed, Mahida Nasir and Sofia Amr have produced today's show. Jazakallah to them as well. From all of us here, Assalamu Alaikum.